Good morning from Washington, D.C., which has finally managed to get through the roughly 100 days that made up the month of March. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm the Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC. Thank you all for being here today. We're very happy that so many of you have continued to invest your valuable time in our Thursday virtual roundtable series, and we hope that as we all adjust to a new normal, the value of our former members and their wisdom and experience will continue to provide information and value to you. We were greeted as April began by finding out that 6.6 million more of our countrymen and women went on the unemployment rolls last week, a total of nearly 10 million over the past two weeks. And as the calendar page turns, the wheels of the federal government will start to do the same, trying to provide for them while processing one of the largest spending bills in the history of our country. On March 27th, President Trump signed the CARES Act, a $2.2 trillion spending bill designed to both stimulate and protect the American economy during a time of enforced economic downturn. With the need to protect our country from COVID-19, causing the functional shutdown of the American economy, the bill was passed with many legislators and economists looking back at the failure of the federal government to protect the economy during a similar slide at the beginning of the Great Depression. However, questions remain about the CARES Act as well. Will it work? What will be the long-term costs? Who will benefit? Who will still need assistance? And what will it truly cost our country? These are all important questions our esteemed panel will hopefully be able to answer for you today. Dr. Charles Bustani will moderate our discussion today. Along with being the Vice President of FMC, he spent a dozen years from 2005 to 2017 representing Louisiana in the United States House of Representatives, where he served on the Committee on Ways and Means. Mary Burke Baker is a Government Affairs Counselor in the Washington, D.C. office of K&L Gates, where she leads the Tax Policy Practice and co-leads the Opportunity Zone Practice. Congressman Dennis Ross represented the 15th District of Florida as a Republican from 2010 until he left office in 2019. During this time in Congress, he served on the House Financial Services Committee, including working on the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Now to get our discussion started, I'm happy to turn the call over to Dr. Charles Bustani. Congressman? Well, thank you, and uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us with this uh, weekly call uh, we're hoping that this provides value to all of you uh, as we continue to discuss relevant topics. As you all know, COVID-19 uh, is a, a severe pandemic. Uh, it has created a crisis which has multidimensional impact, and one key area that needs, needs to be thoroughly explored is the economic dimension of this crisis and whether uh, the measures being taken or enough, what needs to be done, how will the uh, three different packages, especially the, the third package that was passed by Congress, how will it be implemented? This is one of the largest, I think it is the largest stimulus uh, re recovery response package in the history of the United States at $2.2 trillion. How will this uh, address the ongoing economic dimension of this crisis? As was stated, we've got jobless claims now exceeding $6 million, uh, on top of the $3.3 million from last month. Uh, this indeed is a crisis that none of us have, have experienced uh, in our lifetimes. So um, today's discussion will focus on the response to this with an emphasis on taxation and the implementation of the stimulus package. Uh, since we've already had introductions of our panelists, um, uh, we're going to we'll go straight into opening comments. And I, I'm going to start with uh, Mary Burke Baker, who is a uh, government affairs counselor at Washington, D.C. office of K&L Gates, with deep expertise in taxation, drawing upon her experience at the IRS, 
the Senate Finance Committee, and also her now private sector experience in dealing with this, uh, with a, a wide range of taxation issues. She's been very focused on COVID-19 and the response. Uh, and so I'm going to turn it to Mary for five minutes, opening comments, and then we'll shift to our, our colleague, uh, former member of Congress, Dennis Ross. Mary? Thank you very much, Dr. Bustani, and thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining. I thought I would spend uh, uh, just a few minutes giving an overview of the tax provisions that are in mostly the CARES Act, which is the third bill that's been passed, but also there is a significant tax provision in the second bill that was passed uh, just uh, a few short weeks ago, immediately prior to uh, the CARES bill. Um, the legislation so far on, on in responding to COVID in, in terms of tax has been focused on two things, well, actually three things. One is cash flow for employees so that they can continue to pay their bills. The second is cash flow for employers so that they can continue to pay their bills and to keep their employees on the payroll. And the third of that is just keeping workforce in place, trying to make sure that once the economy starts to recover, that employers will have employees that are going to be coming back to work for them so they don't have to retrain employees. A lot of the tax legislation is designed around those three pillars. Very briefly, I'll just run through very quickly what some of those are. For employees, We've probably heard the most about the individual tax rebates, which are also called stimulus checks, which the IRS and Treasury are figuring out right now how to deliver. I was on the Hill in 2008, 2009 on the Finance Committee during the last economic crisis that we had, and I was responsible for figuring out how to get checks out to Americans, and I will tell you that it is not an easy task. It's an easy idea but it's difficult to execute. There uh, also are the relaxation of rules to be able to withdraw money from retirement funds so that people don't have to pay penalties and they're not required to make their annual withdrawal from their benefit plan as the value of their plan has gone down. You want to keep as much principal in there as possible. There's also relaxation of the charitable deduction rules to encourage people to give charitable donations to help people out during this time. And also there is a uh, provision for employers to be able to help pay their employees' student loans and be able to deduct those payments. So that is one way for employers to help employees with their cash flow so that the employees don't have to pay for those uh, loan payments out of their pocket. And most of these are all temporary, just focused on uh, 2020. Some of them go back to 2019 but uh, these are temporary, not permanent type provisions. On the employer side, there's a number of tax provisions. In the, first, in, the, in the second bill that included the mandated family and sick leave payments for smaller employers with less than 500 employees, there is a credit against the, the payroll taxes, a dollar for dollar credit against payroll taxes. So if employers are paying sick and family leave to their employees, they can get a credit against their payroll taxes uh, in exchange to help uh, offset the cost of, of making the sick and family leave payments. Then moving on to the CARES bill, the third bill, 
there are a number of items. One is a delay in the employers paying their share of the payroll uh, employment taxes. They can delay paying any of their remaining uh, employer share of payroll taxes through the end of 2020, and then they can repay those in 2021 and 2022 when hopefully we're back on our feet and we have cash flow. There is an employee retention credit. If the employer continues to keep employers on the payroll, employees on the payroll, they can take a credit for up to uh, 50% of $10,000 of wages per employee, the 5,000 credit per employee. There are uh, other more kind of geeky tax benefits. One is the ability to be able to carry back net operating losses that are incurred last year, this year, carry those back to profitable years and be able to get tax refunds against uh, taxes that were paid when uh, things were doing better. Uh, similarly, there's an alternative minimum tax credit. Uh, the AMT was repealed for corporations in the tax reform bill in 2017, but you had to spread out how quickly the employer could claim their unused AMT credits, but now they'll be able to get them right away. There's a relaxation of the amount of interest expense that can be deducted. The tax reform bill imposed stricter limits on the amount of interest expense that could be deducted each year. A greater amount now will be able to be deducted. That will lower tax bills and also reduce the cost of capital as employers are beginning to get back on their feet and having and doing all this borrowing during this time. Uh, the uh, the last thing that I will mention was there was this, what was called the retail glitch in the 2017 tax reform bill, which was a drafting error, which inadvertently prevented uh, restaurants and businesses that are doing a leasehold type improvements from being able to qualify for the 100% bonus depreciation. That has been fixed now in this bill, which will be a stimulative effect because then as people are getting back on their feet, spending money to make these improvements, it will stimulate the economy. So that's a very quick overview, and I look forward to answering questions later in the program. Mary, thanks for that very concise overview of uh, the tax provisions, and uh, we'll look forward to getting to questions uh, shortly. I want to turn next to Dennis Ross. Uh, Dennis is a former member of Congress from the state of Florida. Uh, he's a lawyer by training and practice law. Prior, uh, prior to serving in Congress, he, uh, he served in the State House in Florida. So he has extensive political experience. Um, Dennis is now uh, uh, teaching, I believe, and also uh, with a law firm, uh, a Florida law firm, Peterson and Myers, in addition to serving as a board member for the former members uh, of Congress organization. Uh, Dennis, why don't you give us five minutes of uh, your perspective on all of this, and then, uh, and then we'll pivot to questions. Thank you, Doc. Uh, Dr. Bussini, thank you, and thank you, uh, you for allowing me to be part of this panel. Uh, Ms. Baker, it is an honor to be here with you. Uh, you are truly the expert in this particular uh, field, and I'm, I'm uh, uh, humbled to be on here with you. As, as the professional politician or former politician, I feel I'm here for color commentary, but I, I would like to uh, offer a few opening comments on where we are. Uh, you know, this uh, CARES Act uh, uh, politically has been probably – uh, one of the most phenomenal uh, responses of, of, of Congress uh, in, in our history. And, and for those that are out there that, that follow 
um, government. It's a very reactive body. Uh, you know, we, we don't do a lot of proactive stuff when we're uh, in elected office. We usually react to crises. And, and this is one where the CARES Act has provided us that bridge. And it has provided us a bridge because, uh, one, we need it. And, two, there's going to be more at the other side of that bridge when we get there. So the CARES Act uh, is another element that Congress has uh, provided by which we can continue at least some form of life as we have known it in terms of an economy not tanking uh, to the times we've seen in the 30s and, and, and in 2008. One of the things that I uh, would, would, would point out that um, uh, this bill, the largest ever, $2 trillion, uh, is just a start. Um, there is there is discussion now uh, very openly about what happens when the the pandemic resolves and how do we kickstart the economy. Infrastructure will most likely be the next uh, uh, area of concern and legislation that is invested in by the federal government. That will hopefully be able to take what this bridge of the CARES Act has allowed us to do and uh, put people back to work in their former jobs in new opportunities and in growth opportunities. Now, what I foresee happening in addition to that is over the next several months as we go through this um, period of, of, of uh, adjustment to the pandemic, as we go through our quarantine, as we see small business starting to just shrink up, in some cases just go away, we're going to see a resurgence again at the end of this pandemic that's going to allow us, I think, for more manufacturing opportunities, uh, a different way in which we, we, we deliver higher education in this country, uh, nonprofits, which have been providing a great service uh, in, in, in social programs are going to, uh, those that still survive are going to be, you know, probably demanded more than ever. But what's going to be interesting is what happens to our individual states. Uh, just about every state out there, uh, with the exception of maybe one or two, has a requirement in their state constitutions that, we, that they pass a balanced budget. So in the next several months, almost every legislature will go back into a special session and adjust their budgets downward uh, to accommodate their loss of revenues. For example, in Florida, we're highly dependent on tourism. Everything in Florida is shut down. Uh, the governor yesterday issued a um, stay-at-home order. It's been two weeks since uh, the major theme parks, all of them have been closed. They don't expect to open again at least through uh, the month of April, probably not through the month of May. We're going to take a significant hit. What's going to happen? I think you'll see states coming to the federal government and saying we need help, whether it be in the form of a bailout, whether it be in the form of, 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 of credits, uh, whatever. So all this is going to put more pressure on the, the, the next element, which is going to be what I call the recovery or resurgence of the economy uh, legislation. Now, what we're going to see, and I think that, that Mary could probably speak to this better than anybody, is how these provisions in the CARES Act are going to apply, and, and with that will come fraud and abuse. We saw that in almost every federal program. We know that, and the correction of that is going to have to be, be taken up. You'll have anecdotal uh, stories about people, you know, uh, profiting at the expense of, of somebody else's misery. Uh, but the, it included in the next package will be glitch bills, will be corrections of fraud and abuse, corrections of, of, of Scrivener's errors, things of that nature, Scrivener's errors, things of that nature. But when it all comes down to it, and, and as, as one who has been in the political arena for well over 20 years, uh, I'm here to tell you that, that logic and reason is never the compass by which we navigate through the political process. But uh, that being said, this is an opportunity that we have seen unlike no other, where we're starting to uh, sense a what I call a civic renewal. 
when we've seen the response of individuals expressing their concern for their neighbors, when we've seen people come to the aid of others, and, and Dr. Bustany, you know, you as a physician, as a surgeon, probably have witnessed this more than anybody uh, through this pandemic. But what we're seeing is an opportunity for uh, the American spirit, if you will, to be regained, rejuvenated, and, and quite frankly, renewed. And, and one of the things I'll tell you about uh, being in government is that everybody expects us to do something, to respond. And government should. Government must. But at the end of the day, government can only do so much. It can't mandate empathy, kindness, or compassion. That has to come within the American spirit. And so what I hope and what I see happening is that as a result of this terrible pandemic, is that we're seeing a renewal of citizen participation. We're seeing a renewal of, of, of civic engagement. And, and, and what I hope uh, is that by the application of these emergency provisions that we have in the CARES Act and the succeeding legislation that will follow, that we will have an opportunity to rebuild, as we have after every crisis in the history of this nation, a better economy, a better generation, and a more sustainable future for, our, for not only our country, but continuing in the global role that we play as a leader. Uh, and with that, I'll stop. Dennis, thanks for that. And um, you can see, uh, Dennis, your your your, uh, your state government experience as well as your federal government experience comes through in all of that. And I really appreciate those comments. I think to start this conversation off, we've now had three packages, two of which have tax provisions. The third, obviously, has a number of major tax provisions, and many of these tax provisions or kind of, you know, taken from the old playbook, in a sense, uh, from previous emergencies. And I guess one question is, um, is there more that can be done on the tax level, um, which could be included in a fourth or fifth package? That, that would be the first question I would pose to both of you. And then secondly, Dennis, you raised an important point about state and local governments uh, under strain with, you know, balanced budget requirements that are going to have to be reset. The function of state and local governments is going to be critical in this uh, going forward uh, and their solvency and the, the ability to continue to deal with this. Um, and also linked to that is the fact that many hospital budgets, many hospital uh, hospitals depend upon some form of local or state tax revenue or bonding capacity and so forth to deal with their their cash flow issues and operations. Uh, Mary, I know you've had a lot of experience with opportunity zones, which take you down to the local level. Um, how do you see this playing out, uh, This the, the plight of state and local governments, how it relates to hospital operations, which are, are going to be acutely affected by this, uh, is there something more the federal government can do in that regard? Uh, that's a very good question, and I like that you mentioned the opportunity zones because that's something that has not really been addressed in any of the stimulus bills so far. And the opportunity zones, for those of you who are not that familiar with it, are by definition low-income census tracts and uh, the Opportunity Zone Tax Incentive is an incentive for a tax incentive for investors to encourage them to invest in in uh, both real estate and operating businesses in these uh, economically depressed areas. And there are a lot of uh, T's to cross and I's to dot with the Opportunity Zone Incentive 
And to be frank with you, many of our Opportunity Zone clients at the firm, which we have well over 100 Opportunity Zone clients, are putting their projects on pause because there are so many timelines and so many uh, rules related to the Opportunity Zone incentive, and they're just not certain that they're going to be able to fulfill those now because of delays. Everybody's distracted because of dealing with COVID. Uh, I just talked with one of our clients yesterday, as a matter of fact, where there was a, a, a shortage of office space in their particular region, and now there's going to be excess office space because the industry that sustains the region has been depressed, and so they're pulling out of their Opportunity Zone project. I have uh, this is an example where you could help by not only legislatively but through regulation. A lot of the Opportunity Zone incentive is done by regulation. So this is a case where Congress obviously has a role in passing new rules and laws where they need to do that, but there's also a lot of opportunity on the regulatory side, not only for the Department of Treasury but the agencies across the executive branch to be able to uh, help help states out uh, through regulations by uh, making it easier for businesses to get back up and, and running and to get projects going again. Um, one, one thing that I think is a real opportunity is the 100% bonus depreciation, which uh, you mentioned, Dr. Pastani, about you know, some of these ideas are retreads of things that have been used before. And traditionally, in past stimulus bills, there has been an acceleration in the depreciation that a business can take when they're buying new equipment. And that already is 100% bonus depreciation is already in law right now because it was made 100% for uh, through the end of 2022 in the tax reform bill. So we don't really have that as that powerful additional boost right now. But one of the things that I think should be addressed in a stimulus four bill is at least extending the period of time that 100% bonus depreciation is in place because as companies are starting to get back on their feet, they're delaying orders for things like office furniture and other equipment. And they're gonna, eventually there's going to be that demand is gonna be coming back and they're gonna to wanna to do that. So extending the 100% bonus is one way that is going to decrease their cost of capital. It's going to encourage those orders. So it's going to help the people that are placing the orders, but also the folks who are manufacturing and making those, those products. And then the last thing uh, uh, Congressman Ross mentioned about in Stimulus 4, fixing glitches. And one of the things that's been overlooked in in the 2017 tax reform bill, there were a lot of international changes to our international tax regime. What has not been addressed is that some of the changes that are being made to the tax laws right now inadvertently are uh, clashing with some of those changes to the international tax provisions that were done in 2017. And then they are creating this quandary. Businesses are modeling, well, do we do this or do we not do this because it's like whack-a-mole. If we do this, then it's going to increase our cost over here because of these international tax rules as they exist right now. So I think that those are the types of issues that should be also addressed in Stimulus 4 so it makes it easier for businesses to take advantage of all 
of the stimulus provisions and not have to make a Sophie's choice of which one they want to use. Thanks, Mary. Dennis, do you want to make any comments uh, before I pose a yeah. Yeah, Doctor. I think I think Mary raises a good point. You know, Congress enacts, and 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 last Friday the the bill went into law, but it must now be implemented. And the regulatory regime is what is is, is authorized to do that. And what we've seen is that has become the bottleneck. It can also be the the opportunity for a, a um, expeditious way of administering the benefits under the Act. There's going to be a lot of interpretation uh, through the Department of Treasury, through the SBA, through the FDIC, as to how some of this is administered. And I think Mary hits it right on the, the point there that rulemaking uh, is going to be crucial. It has to be expedited. You can't go through the usual uh, uh, notice of rule promulgation and expect two years from now to have an answer. This has to be done almost immediately. The other thing I would uh, submit to you is that prior to the, this, this whole pandemic, you know, we've seen a tremendous amount of accumulation of private capital in the markets out there waiting to go to work. And I think a lot of that capital exists. It's going to look for its best rate of return. And with 0% interest rates, in some cases negative interest rates in other economies, uh, that capital is going to find that its best investment may be in essential government projects uh, through non-capital improvements, where, in other words, the, the private capital comes in and says, okay, we want to help with the infrastructure here. We want to help with uh, uh, putting in the, 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 uh, the, the sewage system, the electric grid, things of that nature, because we know it's an essential government function. We know that it will be a priority of government, and we know that we can get a better return off of that. So it allows for uh, the, 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 uh, the opportunity, if you will, to use public-private opportunities uh, to, to make this investment without having to continue to increase our debt in response to this uh, uh, pandemic. Thanks, Dennis. I, uh, going back to the implementation challenges, so I served on the Ways and Means Committee. I, I did a lot of uh, oversight on IRS uh, operations when I was uh, chairing the Oversight Subcommittee on Ways and Means. Dennis, you were, I think, on financial services and uh, – dealt with Treasury quite a bit in Treasury operations. And of course, Mary, with your extensive experience, um, uh, both in the executive branch, Senate Finance Committee, now private sector, one of the concerns I have is uh, the, on the implementation, are the personnel in place to do this? I know Treasury has been short, uh, sort of, short of personnel. They're, they're moving uh, political appointees to, to take on different portfolios now. Um, what other impl- – I mean, we know there's going to be a bottleneck. Uh, I've seen this in past um, emergency responses, uh, particularly with the IRS and getting checks out, uh, whether it's you know, the, the process of getting checks out to individuals or just basically administering more complex programs. Let's talk more about this implementation piece. Um, and – how would you categorize uh, the difficulties um, and, and sort of triage the difficulties? What advice would you have uh, for members of Congress now looking to, to, to provide oversight uh, for the executive branch and trying to implement these things? Uh, Mary, let's start with you on this. I know it's a complex question. We don't have all the answers, but any insights you may have uh, will be very valuable. I think it's a really important question, and, and following up on uh, Congressman Ross's remarks, uh, the, 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 the regulatory, the implementation process is going to be critical. 
this legislation has all been enacted very, very quickly. It's been drafted very, very quickly. That means that Congress did not have the time to be able to vet this, to have hearings on it, to be able to get the stakeholder input that would normally be the, the normal process when you're drafting legislation. So there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be gaps. There are going to be terms that are not adequately defined. There are going to be business models that are not really addressed in, you know, sort of the, the cookie cutter boilerplate type of legislation that by necessity because of the speed uh, that they were drafting it in uh, looks like. So a lot of that is going to fall on the regulators to be able to define those terms and be able to uh, get input from stakeholders of the various fact patterns that weren't really squarely addressed head on in the legislation. There's tremendous power in the implementation process to be able to design the rules so that they can help as many businesses and individuals as possible. The executive branch, and I'm most familiar with the Department of Treasury and the IRS, are they don't have extra people sitting around just waiting for some an opportunity like this to come along. They already are busy with their day jobs. We're in the middle of tax filing season at the IRS and yet they've had to send their people home because of the virus. And, uh, you know, with the IRS, it's difficult to do your work uh, running those big data centers uh, and service centers when people have to work from home. So it's creating a real challenge. Uh, I think uh, one demonstration, the IRS put out some guidance just a couple of days ago on the employee retention credit, and Congress said, wait, 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 that isn't what we meant when we wrote that statute. This is what we meant. So now the IRS is going to revamp that guidance so it's consistent with congressional intent, even if it isn't really what the four corners of the statute say. So it, it, is, um, it is critical and, and uh, you know, we, we've got backlogs. I saw where the White House was sending yesterday people, well, part of White House staff over to the Small Business Administration because SBA's lines and, and uh, uh, computer systems were crashing as people were making uh, applications online for loans. It is going to take time to work this out, and uh, speed is, is uh, paramount right now to try to get money in the hands of businesses and people. It's going to be a challenge, and it's probably not all going to go smoothly, to be honest. Dennis, you, uh, you have any further comments on the implementation? Yes. You know, I, I, again, Mary has is, is, got a great point there. And, Dr. Bustina, you raised it with the uh, regard to personnel. And, you know, when I spoke of my uh, opening comments, I talked about fraud and abuse. Uh, with the lack of personnel that's available uh, in these agencies to handle this massive legislation, there almost has to be a presumption of validity uh, in order to allow for an expeditious flow of liquidity into the, the stream of commerce. And, and with that, presumption of validity is going to come fraud and abuse that will have to be corrected. But, but at what point do you have to make a decision? There has to be a uniformity of the, the application or implementation of the program. But at what point do you say, wait a second, we need to check and recheck to make sure this is valid? What happens at the other end of the, the, uh, the, the downstream from there? Does the, does, the, does, the, does the business, does the consumer, do they just die on the vine waiting for regulatory approval? This is going to be a big issue for us. And, and while Congress has done its job, now it's up to the administration in the regulatory scheme to make sure it's done as 
efficiently and uh, expeditiously as possible. It's, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, it's, inter- you know, it's interesting that you say that because in my experience in dealing with some of these types of uh, responses in the past, whether it was Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita, oil spill, those kinds of things, um, simplicity is always best, both from, you know, the implementation, but also in terms of, uh, you know, sort of keeping, making sure you don't have fraud and abuse you know, seeping into the programs. But I want to go back to something that both of you said in your opening comments. And it kind of goes back to the fact that uh, will we have a V-shaped recovery once the pandemic is controlled or not? And it seems to me the most important factor in all of that will be how do you keep businesses solvent and and keep them from going bankrupt how do you keep them from keep uh, how do you keep how do you enable them to keep employees in place who are trained and ready to go once the restrictions on activity are lifted because then if 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 we're successful in that then we set the stage for a v-shaped recovery if if we continue to see the rate of unemployment going like it's going now and then you start to see businesses start to dissipate and, and you know go into bankruptcy um then the prospect for a V-shaped recovery becomes uh, less likely, and it looks like we have a prolonged, a prolonged recession before we climb out of this. And so it seems to me the priority should be, you know, a simple system that keeps businesses intact to the fullest extent possible uh, with their employees in place, minimizing the cost of unemployment uh, insurance and so forth, but at the same time, preparing for that, you know, that stage when the restrictions are lifted. I know the German German government is looking at it in that form. I think the French are looking at it. The Germans have an established program called their Kurzarbeit program, which is uh, basically set up to help small businesses, you know, stay intact during this kind of thing. Seems to me we have elements of that in our uh, in the um, the CARES Act, uh, but the implementation is going to be critical. Otherwise, you know, we'll continue continue to see this this downward trend. I'd love for both of you to comment on that in terms of how what happens now affects whether we have a V-shaped recovery or a more prolonged recession. Uh, well, I'll, I'll be happy to. Oh. Yeah, go, go ahead, ahead. Please go ahead. No, no, please. I, I defer to you. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. I. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Bushney, uh, w- when we look at recent history and we see the recovery, uh, which was a, which was probably more of a, uh, a U definitely than a V following the 2008 recession, uh, we were impacted uh, as a global economy. We were impacted in almost every sector. But I think we're going to be inclined to have more of a V recovery, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Homeland Security in their essential employment or essential occupations uh, has also included manufacture. Or, um, I'm sorry, uh, construction. And one of the things that we had after 2008 was an absolute vacuum of uh, loss of skilled labor. And in order to restart the economy, there weren't shovel-ready projects because there weren't enough labor out there to do the production necessary. Now, what I think will happen, and the reason I think we'll see a more of a V-shape uh, than we did uh, after 2008, is because 
these essential employments will continue to work. They are the, the, the skilled labor. Uh, they're the ones that are out there, you know, doing essential functions uh, to keep commerce going. And so, therefore, not everything has been shut down. Uh, I think that uh, there are those economies, again, like the state of Florida, they're going to be more of a U-shape because we're so dependent on, on, on tourism, and that's going to have to come back. Uh, we're going to need a demand economy, and, uh, and I think, in order to have a V-shaped um, recovery. What I mean by that is the, 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 the consumers have to have the, 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 the wherewithal, the resources, to demand certain products and services to kickstart um, uh, an economy. And, and I think they will be there. When you look at the bridge of the CARES Act, it keeps putting money into the hands of the consumer. Uh, they're going to have some demand resources available. If this thing passes in the fourth quarter of this year, uh, I think our essential functions that are out there, such as construction and infrastructure projects, are going to continue to go on, probably take off, and as a result, uh, I think we'll see a V-shaped recovery. Uh, that's my impression. Uh, only because we're not shutting down the entire economy as a result of this pandemic as we did in 2008, which was more capital uh, exhaustive than it is uh, this one. Thanks. Mary, do you have anything you want to add there? I think that, that those comments were very thorough. I, I would just add that uh, in order to be able to continue to sustain the recovery, that it's going to be important, I think, to revisit whether or not the benefits or the incentives or relief that's in place right now, whether some of those need to be extended. Most of the tax provisions are good through 2020. We may need to look in Stimulus 4 or Stimulus 5 uh, of extending those into 2021 just to help people stabilize and get back on their feet so that they can get back on the road to recovery. The other, other item I would say is that, again, looking at Stimulus 4, Stimulus 5, the businesses that are kind of the outliers. Uh, I'm thinking right now a good example is like a temporary staffing business. They are the heart of many of the businesses that are out there who are hurting right now, but they, many, the way that the legislation is designed, a lot of the benefits don't apply to those specific staffing businesses because it's just not drafted that way, but yet they are an integral part of those businesses. So it's really important to make sure that all of these kind of outlier businesses that don't fit into that cookie-cutter mold are, are uh, addressed so that you don't have pockets of weakness in the economy that is going to impair our recovery. Good point. Right. So to summarize, uh, the, the, the basic foundation to, to – launch a V-shaped recovery, at least from a legislative standpoint, is in place. Some of these programs will need to be uh, revised or extended or, 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 you know, gaps filled in there. But if that is, if, if all that does come to pass, then the, the other key is the implementation um, and getting the implementation right. Let me go to one final question before we close out the program. It's more of a broad question, and, and that is, in looking at this, uh, this whole U.S. government approach, uh, there's, there's both, you know, the, the, the fiscal side of it, the, the stimulative side, what Congress is trying to do uh, with tax policy and, and, and direct, uh, direct payments. But there's also uh, a central bank or a Federal Reserve uh, 
um, element to this, which is big, and it's not getting as much widespread coverage um, in the general media. Um, do both of you feel that there's a coordinated effort between those two functions uh, at this time? I know uh, both of you are probably paying some attention to that element of it and in in this broader issue of coordination. Um, is it your sense that there is a, a level of coordination there and even a more broad coordination among central banks around the world? I, I, I'll just take the first stab at this one. Um, right. you, you know, uh, when, when I was in, uh, in Congress and I had a chance to, to sit with Jerome Powell, uh, who had just taken over uh, as chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, there was a bit of tension, um, and there was tension that followed uh, for the last couple of years between the, this administration and this chairman. But I, I, I think now, uh, with the moves the Fed has made, and lowering the, the, the rate and buying uh, government, uh, federal debt, uh, I think there's a cooperation there that says, hey, we, we're in this together. Uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of – it was interesting when we had QE1, QE2, and QE3, uh, there was a lot of uh, resistance, you know, from the right saying, we can't do this, we can't do this. Now we're seeing it done, you know, just as a matter of course in order to keep, uh, 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 keep the economy going. Um, I, uh, we, we've learned from other uh, economies. I know Abenomics in Japan has, has had some issues uh, with negative interest rates, but has, has sustained itself and is, is, is you know, doing what it can. Um, Europe has had their issues. Uh, this is a pivotal time in, in uh, I think, the history of, of, of world economics uh, as to how the United States is going to handle uh, this crisis, and I think there, that because of that, there is a cooperation between this administration and and the the Federal Reserve, our central bank, and and I I think it will work. I, I maybe I'm just an internal optimist, but I see from where we were two years ago to where we were a year ago to the to the, I mean that there was a great deal of tension and stress, and now I see them working in concert to try to keep this economy afloat and ready for recovery. Dennis, thanks for sharing that comment. Um, we're getting near the end of our uh, – uh, got a couple minutes left. Uh, do either of you have a, just a, anything you want to close with uh, before we shut down the program? Mary, final parting comments? Uh, I, I think that it's, it's smart to view this as an opportunity. Uh, we shouldn't just be looking back at the legislation that's been done, but let's look at the legislation yet to come. There will definitely be a stimulus four and probably a stimulus five and the implementation process. So uh, companies that are uh, don't feel like their needs have been met or addressed in the past stimulation should be uh, a stimulus bill should be looking at the implementation process and stim four, stim five as opportunities to make sure that their needs are addressed. Don't uh, don't throw up your hands and say this is you know, uh, there's nothing that can be done. There's a lot that can be done. You just need to uh, to to weigh in. There's no way that, that the agencies or Congress can possibly anticipate every fact and circumstances. So that's where it falls on companies and uh, nonprofits and the, and the larger community to educate and inform to make sure that the guidance and the implementation that's coming out is really responsive to the needs of our country right now. 
Mary, thank you for that wise advice. And Dennis, final words from you. Just briefly, I agree with Mary. You know, tax policy influences economic behavior. Uh, What has been put in the CARES Act most likely will have to be reinstated hereafter. I think that there are going to have to be a review of what has worked in the past. I think that the president talking about taking the deductibility of entertainment and dining expenses might be something to look at, in addition to other things that will allow for the stimulation of investment into this economy. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a testing ground, but we have a lot of proven uh, results from, from tax policy in the past. So uh, I remain optimistic. Thanks, Dennis. Well, we're at the end of our time here. I want to thank both of you for a very detailed, informed discussion. Uh, the insights are quite valuable to all of us. On behalf of FMC and everyone on the call, thank you for your participation uh, in this important panel. And with that, we'll close out the call.